Acts 25. Paul is in jail. He's been in jail in Caesarea. He's not in Rome yet, but he's under Roman domination. Uh, the, Roman, the Romans have their, uh, um, their authority, their, their center of government for Judea is in Caesarea. It's called Caesarea Maritime, named after Caesar. Uh, beautiful area right there, uh, beautiful city right there on the Mediterranean Sea. Paul has been taken down there because his life is in danger in Jerusalem. He was under the authority of Governor Felix, um, but it says there at the end of verse 24, verse 27, but after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Festus then, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So imagine that. You have Caesarea, he's on the coast, about a 65-mile journey. You always go up to Jerusalem because it's elevated, uh, even though it's south from Caesarea. He goes up. He's the newly appointed governor. In fact, Felix had been recalled to, uh, uh, are you adjusting me? Is that why I went down? Okay. Uh, Felix had been recalled by Emperor Nero to Rome. Uh, Emperor Nero hasn't gone through his maddening stage yet. He's a pretty level-headed leader at this point. Uh, when we typically hear about Emperor Nero, he was a madman, and he became that. But at this point, he's not. Not at this date, particularly. Um, this, the, the year is A.D. 5960-ish, because that's when Portius Festus came to power. Anyway, Felix was recalled to Rome. He was reprimanded. We don't know exactly what happened to him. We know that his brother Pallas, P-A-L-L-A-E-S, talked about, uh, about him last week. He was able to uh, keep him from getting in too much trouble. At any rate... Festus steps in, and he is now the new procurator of Judea. He'll die in AD 62. Um, in fact, let's get some overhead context here. Paul traveled the empire spreading the gospel somewhat freely. We've seen that up till now. Everywhere he, anywhere he wants to go, that's where he goes. He feels led by the Spirit of God. He goes and he preaches. Catches some flack along the way. Uh, gets beaten along the way. He's hated, but he's still free to move around. Accusations against him have been dismissed up to this point by the Roman rulers. Gallio in Corinth, Lysias in Jerusalem, Felix in Caesarea, and tonight we'll see Festus. All recognize that Paul is neither guilty of inciting rebellion, nor has he done anything to merit prison or death under Roman law. And yet, he remains in prison, under arrest. Even the Jews have no case against Paul. Just trumped up charges for the man they loathe and desperately desire to kill. And that way he is following in the footsteps of his Lord, Jesus. They did the same thing to him. And by the way, what they did to them, what, what the Jews or what people that hate Christianity did to Jesus, what they did to Paul, why shouldn't they do it to us? Those days may be upon us again. Some things about Portius Festus. Nothing is known of him uh, before he assumed the governorship of Judea, and everything we know about him is from Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian of that day. He inherited all of Felix's troubles. And as you recall, Felix, you can't recall anything. Nothing in history is written good about him. Nothing. He did nothing good. That's why when Tertullus, the governor we saw last week, or the, the, the lawyer was just heaping all this praise on him, he did nothing. Paul just said, I know you've governed for a long time. <laughs> I love that passage. He inherits all of Felix's troubles, and most of Felix's troubles were all the brigands or the outlaws that come in, and they want to kill all the Romans in town. It's a very... Messed up time. There's all kinds of people out there. Remember I told you about the Sicarii, the, the zealots of the day who kept the hidden swords, the Sicarii, in their, uh, under their, their robe. And they would pull it out whenever needed, and they would just kill people on the streets, usually Romans. 
Uh, that's everywhere. Lots of violence in the streets, and Festus inherits all these troubles. With the political intrigue at the top levels of government and the gangs of the Sicarii attempting to advance their political agenda, at their peak at this time, Festus recruited an imposter to go out among these gangs who organized a meeting of the Sicarii in the wilderness, and he put them all to death. Now, by the way, the wilderness, when you leave the city of Jerusalem, you're in the wilderness. All you got to do is go to Israel and you can see it. Stand on the Mount of Olives and you look over the mount and it's just wilderness everywhere. Jerusalem is the only lush place around. Uh, so to say in the wilderness, not like they went way out. They just went over the hill beyond Bethany and he gathered them all together and he had them all killed and brought peace to Jerusalem. Josephus says that Festus was basically a good governor, though he died shortly after taking office, two or three year term followed by two evil governors, uh, Lucius Albinus and Gisius Florus, AD 64 to 66. These all followed in the wake of men like uh, Pontius Pilate and the others. These were governors of Judea. The governors of Judea governed the areas for Rome that the Jewish kings did not. You'll see King Herod. We'll, we'll also get King Herod tonight. We've, we know King Herod the Great. We know King Herod Antipas, King Herod Agrippa I, King Herod Agrippa the Second. a couple other Herods. There's Philip. Uh, there's uh, Lysanias, there's uh, a couple of the others. Well, who are the others? Did I say Philip? I said Philip, and, uh, and did I say Philip? Because there's two of them, remember? Um, you don't really need this one, but I put it in here anyway for my own benefit. The high priest at Jerusalem when Festus took office was Ishmael. Previously, it was Ananias, wicked Ananias. But this man's name is Ishmael, son of Fabi, uh, whom, and you know all about Fabi, right? Of course you do. No one does. This is whom Herod the Grip of the Second, he appointed to succeed Ananias. So he appointed Ishmael because that was his job. He had very few responsibilities as a king over a very small area, but he appointed the high priest. Uh, he served as high priest, that is Ishmael, for 10 years, later replaced through Agrippa the Second by Joseph. Now I put this on here just to show you how petty things were then, compare them to now. Uh, who was the son of Simeon, during Festus' rule, he replaced him because there was a dispute over a wall erected to block the king's view of the temple. And while Ishmael was detained at Rome, all this happened while Ishmael was detained at Rome, yet Ananias continued to exercise a dominant role in Jerusalem affairs right up to his death in 66 at the hands of Jewish nationalists. I tell you that to tell you there's all kinds of uproar in the area. There's people that go around killing others, killing Romans as much as they can. That's how you're going to bring in the kingdom, by killing Romans. You've got uh, pagan people leading. You've got kings of the, the Jews who are wicked, horrible people. They all descend from Herod the Great who tried to kill the baby Jesus. Uh, and then you've got this, uh, the highest office in the land of Israel is the high priest. You would expect that to be a godly man. None of them are. You, you think we got it bad. And yet God is still in control, controlling every piece of this. He's already told Paul, remember, he said, don't worry, Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. You're going to Rome. So in the midst of all the garbage, then and now, God still has his plan. It's going to happen. No matter what, his plan's going to happen. That's why I give you all this silliness. This is a soap opera. We're going to meet Herod Agrippa II tonight. Same as Marcus Julius Agrippa II. He was the son of Agrippa I. And we know Agrippa I from Acts chapter 12. He was a violent persecutor of the church. Remember, he had James, the brother of John, killed. Arrested Peter. Was going to kill Peter. Peter miraculously escaped. He is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who ordered the slaughter of the boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem and its vicinity. So this is not a good line of men. They married their sisters. They had uh, relations with their brothers' wives. Uh, and when, if it benefited them, they killed anyone who got in their way. 
Uh, Agrippa II is the brother of Drusilla. We met her last week. She was Felix's wife. Uh, Agrippa II is her brother, and he is also the brother of Bernice, whom it looks like he was married to. You say, wait a minute, isn't that his sister? Mm-hmm. When his uncle Herod, who was the king of Chalcis, this is not Herod Antipas, this is another Herod. You call them all Herods, Herod this, Herod that. When his uncle Herod, king of Chalcis, died, the emperor Claudius gave him his kingdom. Very small kingdom at that time. But he later allowed him, that's Agrippa II, to exchange it for the former tetrarchy of Herod Philip, another uncle of his. Later, the emperor Nero awarded him more territory, and he defended Jewish causes from the Roman standpoint. He reigned for a long time. Uh, was it 47 years, 53 to 100. So he had a small area, and he kept getting larger. He had some bit of power. Vespasian, who was the Roman emperor, 69 to 79, uh, rewarded Agrippa II for his loyalty during the Jewish revolt of AD 66 to 73, uh, extending his kingdom borders even further. So he was a, he's a major figure in the history of Israel. We're going to meet him tonight and, and the next week. He is described, Agrippa II, as brilliant and unpredictable, much given to reckless extravagance, according to Josephus as possessing, quote, both a highly developed sense of self-preservation and fine talents as a diplomat. That's a good politician there. To have a great sense of self-preservation means you'll do anything to keep your office, keep your life, and be somewhat diplomatic. You're friends with everyone. Bernice, who is his sister, his younger sister, had been married to the same Uncle Herod of Chalcis. She was married to her uncle. When he died, she married Agrippa, her well, I shouldn't say she married. It was only rumored. So we don't know for sure. Uh, her brother received the kingdom. After her husband's death, she lived with her brother in what many believed was incestuous. She's always with him. She had a short-lived marriage to King Polemon of Cilicia, then returned to her brother's court. And then in Rome, she became Titus's mistress. Vespasian was the emperor, 69 to 79. Titus, his son, became emperor after that, 79 to 81 in Rome. And he liked Bernice, and they married, but it wasn't right for a Roman to marry a Jew, so he got rid of her, and he wasn't quite sure, apparently, uh, if she still had feelings for her brother. Uh, so he dumped her, and she returned to her brother Agrippa. So again, a big, huge, want to make a good soap opera? Boom, there you go. Um, that, that might bring in the, in the people. Um, okay, let's go back to the scripture here. That's just, a, a, these are some of the people we meet here. If you don't know who they are, you just see their names, and you go, who are they? Verse 2, and the chief priest and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. And they were urging him. Mind you, this is two years later. Two years later, he's been in prison. And those guys that took the vow to not eat for, until they killed Paul, got to be really hungry by now. <laughs> the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul. That is, they were urging Portius Festus. That he might have him brought to Jerusalem at that same time. So, Festus comes into office. He goes to Jerusalem. Paul is still in jail in Caesarea. He's meeting with the people in Jerusalem, and they say, let's go back to Caesarea and get that Paul. He's been there for two years. Verse 4, Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. That sounds like due process. After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from, the, from Jerusalem stood around him. Note there, it doesn't say what the charges are, but they're bringing many and serious charges against him which they could not prove. That means two years later, 
They still have not developed any evidence for their charges. And I love that because even though they knew two years prior that, that they couldn't find anything on him, Paul refuted them all. Felix said, well, there's nothing here. Lysias said, there's nothing here. Remember the commander. So two years later, their, Paul's reputation is so squeaky clean. They couldn't drum up anything. They couldn't dig up anything. Give, some, give someone two years for Donald Trump. It takes two minutes to dig up something on the guy. Call the latest porn stars. He's probably been with them. That sort of garbage that's around in the world today and our leaders. Now let's go back to the real men. Two years later, you're just trying to trump up the old charges. Nothing on him. I love that. I love that about our man. So he goes down. Paul arrived. Uh, verse 8. While Paul, um, while Paul said in his own defense... I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. So that looks like those are the three charges. They're saying he um, broke the law against the law of, of the Jews. That's he broke the Mosaic law. And remember that was because they said he took someone into the, um, into the temple, uh, Gentile in the temple. He didn't do that. And he hasn't done anything against the temple itself. And he hasn't done anything against Caesar. So those are the charges, and that's all he had to say. And there's really no one there to say, nuh-uh, you did. They don't have any evidence. The Jews are just hoping the Romans will get rid of him. Festus, verse 9, note this, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Go back down to verse 27 of chapter 24. Felix knew that Paul was innocent and should have let him go. But after two years passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and wishing to do the Jews a favor. Why are they always wishing to do the Jews a favor? Maybe to keep the peace. Let's just make sure we'll keep this innocent man who is a citizen of Rome in jail. So what Felix did, Festus is doing. Wishing to do the Jews a favor, he answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer, and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. Don't you love that? Look, if I'm guilty, and I deserve death, I'll take it. I'll die. I don't mind dying. If I've done something wrong, I need to pay for it. And he said, I would go. But he knows that if he goes up there to Jerusalem, he knows they're lying in wait to kill him. Over 40 hungry people. I say that in jest. I'm sure they've eaten something by now. So I appealed to Caesar. He had that right as a Roman citizen. You're not going to try me here at the the tribunal in in Caesarea. You're going to send me there. If you're not going to do it, Festus, I appeal to Caesar. Verse 12. When Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You've appealed to Caesar. Caesar, you shall go. Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea. So you've got several days. So the appeal to Caesar... um, Getting to Rome, they're in Caesarea, they've got it, that's a long travel trip to Rome. In fact, when we do chapter 27, we'll note that when, when the ship crashes that Paul's on, how many people are on it, do you know? Yeah, Paul says, or Luke writes, there's 276 prisoners. So apparently in Caesarea, there's a lot of prisoners, and they're waiting for the next ship to go to Rome, where all these men will either be uh, tried or beheaded or, or just later on in their sentence. But Paul's going to wait to go. So there's more days that pass. And so he confers with his council. Several days had elapsed. King Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa is probably in town to welcome the new governor. 
King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea. They paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered him. By the way, this is A.D. 60. Um, uh, Agrippa's been in power for about seven years. He knows what's going on. He knows what goes on in Jerusalem. Um, He was born in A.D. 27. So he was a young boy when Jesus' ministry was going about. He would have heard about the, the carpenter from Nazareth. He says in verse 16, I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has had an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat in the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accuser stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. Apparently Festus came in knowing that this guy had been in jail for a couple years, expecting a really juicy case. But upon hearing the charges, he's going, this is not what I expected. Verse 19, here's what he says that they said. They simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion uh, and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul uh, asserted to be alive. My guess is that Agrippa at this point went, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard about that one. But isn't that the the point here? Even, Even Festus gets what's going on. The main thing here is about a guy named Jesus whom people say is dead that Paul says is actually alive. Isn't that our own argument today? That's, that's everything. Everything we believe as Christians is right there. People hate us, despise us, ignore us, pass us off as some crazy group of people because we don't believe that this guy was dead. Well, we believe he was dead, but that he came back to life. That's the crux of the matter. The crux, you know the crux of the matter? That's a Latin term that means cross. Isn't that cool? The cross of the matter. That's where everything comes down to. Not just the cross, but the actual resurrection. Being at a loss how to investigate, verse 20, such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial in these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So Paul is appealing his case to Nero. And we know he goes to, he makes it to Rome. In the end of the, of the book of Acts has Paul in Rome. He goes before Nero. Isn't that amazing? Paul stood before kings, governors, Romans, Jewish council members, the various high priests, and the Roman emperor himself, Nero. Isn't that incredible? The gospel went to that guy. No doubt Paul went and told him, here's why I'm on trial. Here's my case. I mean, when you think of the madman, if you've ever studied Nero, he was a crazy person. He became such. To think that that man's ears heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He looked out at a man that all of us would love to meet and shake his hand. How many of you have ever pictured what what Paul looks like? You know, the description of him is not of a handsome man. He is, heaven forbid, short. (laughs) He's called a very little man. In fact, the word Paul means little. Uh, His name is Saul of Tarsus, but he was short. It is said that he had uh, bow legs. He had a beetle brow, which is to say a unibrow. 
balding, bug eyes, and a long hooked nose as a good Jew would have. We expect this guy to be tall, dark, and handsome walking around the empire. You know, somebody that looks like me. And don't do, don't do that. That's right. Thank you. There was this guy that came to our church years ago. Our, our sons played baseball together. And uh, he, he visited the church, he and his wife. Real nice people. We liked him a lot. And he came and he sat on, we were meeting. We didn't have this building, so we were over there. So I picture him over there in the other building. And he said, Lance, he said, when I picture you, when I hear you teach, I picture you, that that must have been just what the Apostle Paul looked like. And I went, did he know what Paul looked like or was that a compliment? Was that a compliment or really a low blow? And here's what, he never came back. But he was real nice about it. Yes. Uh, Josephus did not say that. It was, um, it was Ignatius, I believe, who said it, who, who, uh, who lived uh, just shortly thereafter. Um, it's, in, uh, it's, in, it's written in two different, uh, two different sources of just the description of, of Paul, ancient sources. Interesting, though, isn't it, that they would picture him like that. They were historians as well, right? Ignatius was, Ignatius was a church leader. He wasn't a historian, yeah. Uh, it was, it was Ignatian, Ignatius of Antioch. He's uh, early church father, we would call him. Lived in AD 110. He was a disciple of John, the brother of James. So tomorrow you're going to hear him. Verse 23. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice, he's always with Bernice, his sister. Note this, amid great pomp. Now seven years into his tenure, he wasn't real, he wasn't a big leader. But apparently he's taken the opportunity to come in with all the great pomp. Maybe trumpets, paving the way for this man and perhaps his beautiful sister. They entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Paul's been in jail for a couple of years. Um, later on, we, we, we know he's got chains because he'll say, I wish everyone was like me except for these chains. So he's not in a dungeon. He's not under the, the worst lock and key, but apparently he's chained his friends can come and go, but it's not the best of situations. Verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews, all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not live any longer. I imagine he said that somewhat sarcastically, loudly declaring that he might not, ought not live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. What does that remind you of? Pontius Pilate, I find no wrong with this guy. What, what are you guys after? He says it, I think Pilate says it three times. I find nothing wrong with him. Festus is making it clear there's nothing here, nothing worthy of death. And since he appealed to, to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Here, Nero, here's a guy that we don't know what to do with. Well, is he innocent? Every charge has been proven false. Why is he? If I'm Nero, I'm going, why is this guy wasting my time standing before me? Lysias, you should have set him free. Felix, you set him, should have set him free. Festus, you should have set him free. But if he would have been set free, what would have happened? Would have been killed by the Jews. God is protecting him through the Romans. Therefore, I have brought him to you before you especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate all the charges against him. Now, once again, we have this narrative passage. No theology. 
We don't know how to get saved. We don't know. Uh, we're not told here's what the Bible says about God. Here's what it says about uh, other areas of theology. But we do see God's providence permeating the pages. God is, is uh, in the midst of everything, protecting, directing. He told Paul, you're going to Rome. Paul's not going there like the way he went to Philippi or Berea or Thessalonica. He's going to Rome under arrest. But God is orchestrating the events. Is that just a little section in time where that happens? Or is that in everyone's life at all time? How you answer that question dictates really how you're going to view life in general. Dictates how you're going to interpret the news at night when you watch it. Is God in charge or not? Does God go on cosmic fishing trips and leave things alone and come back and go, oh goodness, oh my me. Thank you, Leslie. I thought it was funny. Oh my me. I should have blanked out the slide. I just put it in there because I thought it was interesting. R.T. France makes the... the uh, the notice, he said, Luke Acts mentions three Roman emperors by name, Augustus, Tiberius, and Claudius. It's ironic and perhaps fitting that nondescript underlings like Felix and Festus are named, but the current emperor Nero is not. Nero had not yet become the icon of cruelty and evil. He had demonstrated a sense of grandiosity and exaggerating his achievements and talents and brazen attempts to satiate his desire for admiration. It would have been galling to this narcissistic psychopath that he did not even merit a footnote in this history. I love it. So, Paul is waiting, waiting, waiting. Have you done that? Maybe you're in the midst of that right now. You're waiting. We're all waiting for something. And we're praying for something. And we're waiting for God to fulfill it. And Paul has gone, Paul never would have thought, I would think he would never have thought, okay, Lord, you said I'm going to Rome. Now I'm in jail. Seriously, another day in jail? Seriously, another day? My friend Maddie over there, she says, I wake up every day and I say, seriously, Lord, you're going to keep me here? She used to be a runner. Now she's in a wheelchair. She would rather just be with Jesus. We're glad she's not. But she does. She wakes up, Lord, really, another day? Waiting, waiting, waiting. So when you walk around tonight, think of our friend Maddie. She can't do that. She can do other things. Uh, she's not so terrible. She's got a lot of love and a husband takes care of her, which is good, right? Sometimes, right? <laughs> but we're waiting for things. In the midst of waiting, we can learn a few things. In two years in Macedonia and Achaia, that's Greece. Paul had established some thriving churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. Three years in Asia Minor resulted in a church in Ephesus that laid the foundation for a generation of Christian theology and a wonderful string of pastors from Paul to Timothy to John himself. Yet now Paul is sidelined for two full years. Though we might wonder what he might have accomplished had he been free because we have our own ideas of success and how God can accomplish that through us, God did what he did to Paul for divine reasons. Reasons we cannot know in the here and now. Neither could Paul. Um, I read stories of, of men in ministry um, who, uh, who are taken out for a while. Some are taken out for good. They're taken out in the prime of their life, what we call the prime of life. Uh, whereby uh, they're sick for a couple of years and they lose their job at the church and, they have to, and they're out and they're great teachers. And we wonder, why are they not in a church? Why are they not teaching? Shouldn't they be out there? And if you're in that position, I, I would think that right now I'm, I'm perfectly healthy. If something were to happen to me and I couldn't preach, uh, and I would have to resign and let someone else come here, and I'd be out of commission, and I'd be going, what, what's the deal? Lord, you're going to keep me here? Am I not here to be a teacher or not? And God's answer would be, well, maybe you're here because I want you to be here. For whatever reason, I have you here. We're waiting. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
If you've ever read, and I, I strongly encourage it, one of the greatest missionaries ever, his name was William Carey. Read a biography on William Carey, an Englishman from the 1800s who went to India to bring the gospel to the heathen. Um, people didn't want him to go. His wife didn't want to go. In fact, his wife literally went insane and died there. He translated the Bible. He, he wrote dictionaries and grammar trying to put the Bible in the Indian or the Bengali language. One day, he was off somewhere uh, doing whatever he would teach, Bible in the village, and he got word that the little warehouse they had with all of his stuff, all of his translations, he had 18 of them. I think it was 18 of them. He had his grammar and his dictionary, everything he'd worked so hard on, it caught fire. Lost everything. Everything. Uh, his biographer says he mourned for about a week, and he said, we got work to do. You know, apparently God didn't like my grammar. <laughs> apparently God didn't like the translations. And we think, Lord, really? really? I could have gotten those out. These people could have read the Bible in their own language. You could have stopped that fire. And God from heaven, yeah, I could have. But I didn't. But we have this human idea that God needs us to live 100 years to preach the gospel everywhere. We have this human idea, we preachers do, that we're better when more people hear. Where does it say that? More, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. That's what we think. Lord, I need to be in commission. I don't need to be in bed. I'm a teacher. You taught me the Bible. I need to be out there. Do you? Really? I mean, I always remember what Howard Hendricks told us at Dallas Seminary. He said, guys, whenever you start to think too highly of yourself and your head's getting a little bit too big for your body, go fill a big bucket of water, put your hand in it, and pull it out. And the impression that your hand made in that bucket, that's what you mean. <laughs> now that's humbling, is it not? We all come out of seminary full of ourselves. We really do. We have a really good, expensive degree, and we've learned a lot of good information. We need the next 10 or 20, or however long have I been doing this, 23 years after seminary, 23 years or more to get over ourselves. We think because we're mad at God because we think this is what God should do. You know somebody who died too young, don't you? Why did they die? Why did, Lord, they were so good. They were doing such good things. Does God not know what he's doing? This is the waiting game. Or living too long. You're 90 years old. You can't talk. You can't wipe your own backside. That happens. I mean, it's gross, but... You're worthless. You feel worthless. Your only point on this earth is so that someone can take care of you and you're going, really, Lord? And God's answer, really, son. That's where the, the argument comes up of shouldn't we be able to uh, euthanize ourselves? Shouldn't, uh, shouldn't suicide be legal in the sense that we should do that and get help from a doctor? It makes some sense. We put dogs down, animals down. Shouldn't we be able to put ourselves down? No, no, we don't have the right to take our lives or anyone else's for that matter, except for the crime of capital punishment. In which case, okay, I'll exist longer than I thought I should have. I'll be, uh, I'll make a great horrible burden on, on my children who are now taking care of me and their spouses because that's what God wants. Man, I hope I'm not preaching to myself. But this is what Paul might have been doing. Really, Lord? I thought I, I could be in Rome right now. You appointed me an apostle. I could be preaching the gospel there right now. You know, by the way, excuse me. Paul has already written the letters of the Romans. And if you've read Romans 16, you know all the people he names. They're already there in Rome. Rome's already got a bunch of people preaching the gospel. 
doesn't it? And Paul's not even going there to preach the gospel. He's just going there as a base of operation so he can get to Spain. So Rome doesn't need him. Spain might, he might think Spain needs him. Be careful who you think and what you think needs you. But don't be too humble about it either. About thinking nobody needs me, I need to leave. Like I do from time to time. And I tell my, my kids and wife, what am I doing here? I need to go. No, God never. It's never mentioned that he made it to, to Spain. Right, right. Some surmise he did. Uh, and in a timeline before Second Timothy, we can fit it into a timeline, but we don't know. It's not known. Good question, though. So when you're waiting around, I counseled with a guy today, and he said, Lance, I admit, I'm mad at God. He can't reconcile with his wife. Things are not going quite right. And I understand. He said, I admit, I'm, I'm, I'm mad at God. Okay, all right. Let's get over that. I've met too many people in my life. My dad died early. That's what they say. My, I'm mad at God. My, I was eight years old. My dad died. That's them, not me talking. Or this happened to me. I was abused at some level. I'm mad at God. God could have stopped it, but he didn't. We could all say something like that. Recall that Paul had already endured a beating in Jerusalem, yet had done nothing wrong. This is just within the, within the two years. We're not even talking about the beatings he took in Galatia. He addressed an angry mob, the Sanhedrin or addressed the anger mob and the Sanhedrin, and he was transferred to Caesarea to avoid assassination, had been tried before Felix, and was now about to appear before Festus after sitting in a jail for two years, another pagan governor. He had committed no crime, and yet he was a prisoner of the Roman Empire and on the receiving of the spurious accusations of hateful Jews. Why do all these people hate me? I have no friends. He has no wife. He has no children. Where are the people that love me? God, where are you? Have you been there? Other people have had this happen. The greatest of men. Joseph. What did Joseph say in Genesis 50, 20? What you meant for evil, brothers, God meant for good. Daniel. Why was Daniel arrested and put in the lion's den? He was an old man, by the way. Old man. He's in his 80s by the time he got to that lion's den. Yeah, I know. Most people think of him as a little kid petting the lion's mane. Daniel was in his 80s when he was in the lion's den. For what reason? Why was he in there? He prayed. It wasn't a statue. It was that he prayed. The statue guy was gone. Nebuchadnezzar was gone. Daniel was actually serving. We know he was this old because the empire was run by a guy named Darius the Mede, who was a Persian. The Persians had taken over after the Babylonians, and we know when the Persians took over, and that was 539 B.C. Daniel was taken captive in 605 B.C., so if he was 15 years old, 75 years later, 70 years later, he's 85-ish. In a lion's den for praying. William Tyndale. You know why William Tyndale was in prison and eventually burned to death? Putting the Bible in English. Corey Ten Boom. You know the story of the Ten Boom family? They hid Jews during the Holocaust. The book's called The Hiding Place. Read it. If you haven't read it, you haven't read anything good. It's one of the greatest books I've ever read in my life. It has a, uh, she's my hero, Corey Ten Boom. Um, and for hiding, I, I, I imagine a day when we'll hide ladies, women who have babies. We'll hide them to keep people from ripping the baby out of their womb or, or aborting the baby, and we'll be arrested for that. You don't think that's going to happen? Perhaps you. That's right. He, he made a way for whatever purpose he needed it for. What's Daniel looking at there? 
<laughs> he is an old man there. My wife gave me this picture for Christmas. He's looking at the light. He's not looking. This is what the men and women of God do in the midst <clears throat> of the turmoil that surrounds them. Of the unfairness, if you will. Sitting in a lion's den for praying and being the most go- one of the most godly men the Bible depicts with Joseph, Noah, Moses. Here he is, standing at the light. That, that's what it is. When all of the, the garbage is around you, find yourself looking to God. You start looking at the world. You start looking at the lions. Oh my, I'm in trouble. Turn around. Take it out of your sight. Look up. I look at that picture all the time in my office. Uh, this is what Paul would have done. Psalm 109. Called an imprecatory psalm. O God, whom I praise, do not remain silent, for wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. My good friend Jonathan Threadgill sent that to me in the midst of my own struggle one day. He's back there tonight, and he said, Lance, read Psalm 109. Uh, You remember that, John? I'll never forget it. Uh, read this, read this. This is what happens, you know. Sometimes life throws you a curveball. Uh, it happens. It's happened to the best of people. It's probably happened to you. Uh, but I'm a man of prayer. But I'm a man of prayer there. There it is. Falsely accused, underappreciated. These are soul-searching experience. Soul-refining experiences. Painful though they are. They happen. Especially when you're a preacher or a CEO or just a regular guy or gal seeking to share the good news with someone. Swindoll says this, these soul-refining experiences force the accused to take honest stock of his or her deeds, to sift nuggets of truth from the fiction, and to take responsibility for wrongdoing and discard the rest. The falsely accused learn who they are in Christ, independent of their peers' opinions, and then emerge from that particular flame purified of both grandiosity and self-recrimination. I think the truth is, is when we're falsely accused, uh, there's probably something in there that's true. Underappreciated? Eh, that's just us feeling sorry for ourselves. Lord, I'm just, I'm just such a good worker. Shouldn't people be saying great things about me and not making fun of me? No, not really. And so when you go through these experiences, it's God you know, burning you. Burning that dross off the off the, the silver until he sees himself. That's what those difficulties do. No doubt God was making the greatest missionary who ever lived into the greatest missionary who ever lived through these trials. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. What's that next line? Look full in his wonderful face. And what? The things on earth will grow strangely dim. The light of his glory and grace. Colossians 3, 1 to 3, Paul says, since then, and it's great that Paul wrote this. I I I think, before I read it, remember, this is a man who wrote most of the New Testament. So when you know what he's gone through, you know the hell that he's gone through, and what he writes, I think it makes that much more of a difference. It's not like he's saying, look, I don't know what trial is, but these sound like good words to me. He writes to the Colossians, by the way, he was in jail in Rome when he wrote this letter. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, written by a man in chains in a Roman cell. Could have been easily been written by Daniel in a lion's den. Could have been written by Joseph, who is in a dungeon for something he never did. Everyone born of God, John says, has overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Faith in the midst of that. It's, Lord, I'm in, I'm in this terrible vice, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, but my faith, that's the victory. Because, you know, I could die in this prison cell. I could die being falsely accused. I could die with no real understanding of why I'm suffering. But I know this. You are in charge. You are in control. I don't see everything, but I know you do. That's what faith is. That's the victory that overcomes the world. John Calvin says this, Christ's servants must be all the more courageous to carry on through good and evil reports. They should not think it anything remarkable that evil is spoken of them when they have done good. At the same time, they must easily defend themselves before men when the opportunity arises. So he's saying, it's going to happen. You don't have to just remain quiet. Make sure you defend yourself. If you're innocent, say, I'm innocent. Just as Paul did. Pretty good snapshot of old JC there, right? Slandered by his own people, Paul knew the security and the love of his Savior. The same assurance can fuel our own lives. Romans 3, 33 to 34 and 38 to 39, Paul says, Who will bring a charge? Any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Don't miss that. Christ the Son is sitting at God the Father's right hand praying for us. Who's on his left hand? Romans eight twenty six. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God and the Son of God are praying to God the Father for you and me. And when does the Spirit pray for us in Romans eight twenty six? When we don't know how to pray. For I am convinced, and I love it when a when an apostle says, I am convinced. I'm, I'm almost sure, he says. I think it might be. No. I am convinced. This is your security of salvation. That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Don't miss that. Nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet you have these schmoes that come up and say, I think that you can lose your salvation. Strange that an apostle says, nothing, I am convinced nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Some food for thought, Charles Spurgeon said, we ought never to fear those who are defending the wrong side. For since God is not with them, their wisdom is folly. Their strength is weakness and their glory is their shame. That's when I started studying apologetics, when I would read this quote this quote from Spurgeon is, don't worry, you might not be able to argue your case well, but if you're arguing for the truth, you win. You ever heard, a, uh, seen a debate, and, and the, the more slick talker is the atheist? And the Christian is kind of stumbling through, and you think, ah, oh, he lost. No, he won. We're judging it by a slick talker. Slick talkers can get you to buy anything. People telling the truth may not always do it with style, but the truth is the truth. So don't ever be fearful when you're going up against someone that might be smarter than you. 
You tell them about Jesus as God. He died on the cross, rose again on the third day, and lives to intercede for his people. You are on the winning side. You're, you're the one in the right. They may put you down, but you win. God is the hidden director of events. Paul, as is the rest of us, is protected not because he is special. He's protected because he is a chosen instrument of God with a special task that he has yet to complete. When completed, then he'll die. What was true for him is true for us. When our job is completed, then we'll die. Now, we don't know when. It might be to raise your kids and then die. It might be to get old and your kids watch you die. It could be to have a terrible bout of cancer and die. You know all the ways that we can go. There are no guarantees when you leave this room or when sitting in this room. I could be standing before you and have a stroke. Cheryl and I have known two preachers just recently, uh, one of which had a stroke. He was 48 years old. He came to my my in-law's church from California, finally sold his house, got over to Nacogdoches to become the pastor, died, had a heart attack and died age 48. And this is after their first pa- the pastor prior to that left, under no bad circumstances. He just wanted to move back up to South Carolina. Went up to South Carolina, had a stroke, and died. Don't go there, <laughs> <laughs> Strokes still happen here, Carol. But when it's time to go, time to go. I sometimes wonder if God's going to watch this. Here, I'm going to take Lance now. Didn't do it. Darn. Wouldn't that be traumatic, though? Yeah, for you, yeah. Be pretty, release, release for me. Okay, some colorful. Clap when I go. There he goes, finally. I won't hear it, don't worry. But if I come back and I hear it, I'm going to be really upset. Every moment of our existence, we are subject to forces beyond our imagination. Every moment. In the morning, sitting at the table, sipping coffee, eating cereal, we are not at rest. In fact, we are zipping through space at an incomprehensible speed. Aren't these beautiful? Our globe revolves at 1,000 miles per hour, I'm told. I didn't look. This is what I'm told. I've heard it at different speeds. Circuiting the sun at 66,000 miles per hour. And that sun makes its orbit in the Milky Way at 483,000 miles per hour. Also, the Milky Way itself is ripping through the universe at 1.3 million miles per hour. We are completely unaware of this breathtaking motion, or we take these facts for granted and never give them a second thought. But for just one moment, we should pause and remember the God who set all these forces in motion. He is not the God of the deists who wound up the universe like a clock and then backed off. No, he has numbered the hairs on our heads, his mighty hand, which makes the forces that drive the universe seem minuscule by comparison, is guiding all the events of our lives. And the best news is that this God is good and loving. We are not victims of circumstance. We are under the direction and protection of God. That's what I think, at least my perspective, of the events going on in these narratives. Let it remind you as it has reminded me. Nothing's happening randomly. Whatever pain or difficulty you're going through, hey, it's all right there in the palm of God's hand. You are not forgotten. If you draw a breath, you are drawing the breath that God ordained you to draw from this land that is His, from this globe and this universe that He made. 
He's got you. He knows you. He knows the hairs on your heads. He knows the thoughts in your mind. He knows everything. And isn't it amazing that he loves us in spite of all of that? He is in charge. He's directing the events of the Apostle Paul. Probably thinking, Paul, you have no idea. But I'm recording these things. I'm going to give them to Luke. I'm going to preserve them in a book. And it's going to be preached in this little town you never heard of. Across the globe in 2,000 years. Imagine if Paul would have known that. In a place called Cyprus. No, not C-Y-P-R-U-S in the Mediterranean. But right outside of a place called Houston. Who's that? That's a guy named Sam Houston. That's another whole story. He would have told Paul. That guy got baptized in the name of Jesus also in Texas. All kinds of things I could tell you, Paul. But all of these events are coming together for my perfect will. And it will come to its fruition. In His glory. In His glory. For His glory. glory. And along the way, blesses us. All right. Let me pray for you. Lord, you are so big. We can't even grasp how big... Our own, our own city is, much less the earth, the universe it sits in, and the many that are apparently out there beyond ours. And to you, it's all called into existence. You are so far above us. I pray, Lord, that in all the, the ways that we minimize you, that you would broaden our, our thinking. In the pea brain mind you gave us, it can work beyond what we, what we use it for. Expand it so that we might worship you so that we might worship you better, so that we might be better, so that we might spread the word better, so that we might give you glory in the difficult circumstances we're in as we wait. Maybe we never understand. You don't owe us an explanation of what's going on, but you've given us pictures of the past and your word that much greater things are going on inside the, the difficulties of the people you put them through. May we give you praise and glory for who you are and what you do, even if it hurts us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 